Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and this is Rules-Based Disorder here on Colin. Today I want to take some questions from people. I wanted to do that last week, but I wasn't able to because there's been some technical issues, but I think they've been pretty much resolved. So anyone today, if you have some questions, I'd love to chat and see what people are thinking. I'm just briefly just talking about a few things that, I, that are happening right now in the world that I think are important. And again, uh, please feel free to go ahead and jump in um, in the, the queue so I can take any calls for any questions. But I'm going to start really briefly. I'm going to talk about a trip that Mexico's left-wing president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, has been taking, AMLO. He's known by the acronym AMLO. And I just want to briefly talk about this trip that he took to multiple countries in Central America and, and also to Cuba. He took a historic trip to Cuba, which is very important. And in this trip to Cuba, the Mexican president, Lopez Obrador, he called for the U.S. to lift its blockade on Cuba to end its sanctions, which is incredible. I mean, because in from the 1980s until 2018, Mexico was dominated by neoliberal governments that were very pro-U.S., that were in many ways kind of puppet governments. And... AMLO, he's certainly not perfect. There's criticisms, which I can talk about, but he has taken a very independent policy, which has been very impressive. And he took this trip to Cuba and he met with the Cuban president, Miguel Diaz-Canal, and then he called for the U.S. to lift its sanctions and its blockade on Cuba, which goes back to 1960, brutal, suffocating sanctions and a blockade. And uh, the Cuban president, Diaz-Canel, gave AMLO the most important, uh, most important award that a foreigner can get from Cuba, which is, which is called the Order of Jose Martí, named after the legendary Cuban independence leader who, who led a resistance against Spanish colonialism and also opposed U.S. colonialism after Spanish colonialism. And what, what's also very interesting is at, in in his same meeting in Cuba, uh, AMLO met with Raúl Castro, the brother of legendary leader Fidel Castro, who is, has passed away, of course, unfortunately. But he met with Raúl Castro, and he gave a very interesting speech in which AMLO called for a, creating a union of Latin America, unifying Latin America. And he said, "We." Sh this is an exact quote, I'm translating from Spanish. We should build something similar to the European Union, but based on our own history, reality, and identities. And he said, in that spirit, we should not dis discount the possibility of, of eliminating the organization of American states for a new organization that is truly autonomous and not a lackey of anyone. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a pretty incredible statement saying that we should abolish the OAS criticizing U.S. intervention in Latin America, of calling for an end to the U.S. blockade on Cuba in this historic trip by a Mexican president to, to Havana. I mean, it's, it's a pretty incredible development. And before I take questions here, I, I wanted to just also add that Lopez Obrador, the Mexican president, also went to Belize, uh, another important country in the region. And he met with the Prime Minister of Belize, Juan Antonio Briceño, and he gave a very interesting speech 
talking more about his idea for unity of Latin America, creating a kind of Latin American union. And AMLO said, this is a translated quote from Spanish, quote, I maintain that it is necessary to move forward in an integration of all of America and the construction of a model similar to that of the European community, a model that preceded what is today the European Union. So when he says European community, that's with a capital E and capital C. That was the model before the EU was created. And I guess I don't know exactly what he's referencing there in terms of the distinction, but I think one of the main distinctions might be that the the European Union has a common currency as opposed to the European community, which was an economic bloc, but without yet adopting the euro as the common currency. And AMLO continued saying, quote, he's talking about the unity of Latin America. He's saying, quote, only in that way can we confront the turbulence of the global economy and the geopolitical danger that the economic decline of the United States represents for all of the world, opposed to other regions, especially Asia. And in particular, I am referring to the economic advance of China. So another incredible statement in which AMLO says openly, look, the U.S. economy is declining. There are major problems that this poses geopolitically. He's basically hinting of, at the instability of the United States, the r- potential rise of extremist, you know, far right movements in the United States and the danger that poses for the region. He's saying that we need to unite given that threat. And also we need to unite because it, he's saying that there's other regions of the world that are advancing economically, especially Asia and China in particular. And that poses, you know, new opportunities for Latin America. So, I mean, this is this is pretty historic stuff we're talking about. And AMLO, I mean, I could talk about him later if people have more questions. AMLO is not Fidel Castro. He's not Hugo Chavez. He's not a socialist. He's a progressive nationalist. But he also is a, a very independently minded leader. And he's not in any way a U.S. puppet. He wants to do what's best for his country. He wants to do what's best for the region. And it's very interesting to see him making these comments. He, he also said in this meeting in Belize, and he also said this when he was in Cuba, he said, quote, I have insisted in the necessity that no government in the hemisphere and no country in America be excluded from the upcoming summit that will be taking place in Los Angeles, that no one excludes anyone. So he's talking about the Summit of the Americas, which is a meeting of the countries in North, Central and South America in Los Angeles. And this is sponsored by the OAS, the U.S. government dominated organization of American states held. And it will be held in L.A. from June 6th to 10th. And although it's organized by the OAS, AMLO is insisting that all countries be allowed to attend. And he's referring specifically to Cuba Venezuela and Nicaragua, which are obviously not invited because the Summit of the Americas is held under the auspices of the OAS and the U.S. State Department. And clearly it did not invite the three countries of socialist governments, Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, that that Washington dubbed as the supposed troika of tyranny. So AMLO is once again challenging U.S. foreign policy and saying that, look, if we're going to be if we're going to be real about organizing these conferences to talk about what's happening in in the Americas, we need to bring everyone to the table, including Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And he said as well, he said, quote, 
It should be a meeting that allows us to resolve our disagreements without hegemonies or arrogance. So another indirect comment about the U.S. accusing it of hegemony and arrogance. So very interesting things happening. I mean, now I'm going to jump to your questions, but I, I just wanted to begin because that hasn't gotten much coverage in English. But I think it's very important to see the integration of Latin America is moving full steam ahead. And we even now see leaders who, like I said, are not revolutionary socialists. We're not talking about Daniel Ortega or Fidel Castro. We're talking about AMLO, who's a progressive but not a revolutionary. And even he's saying, look, the U.S. is seriously in decline. China's on the rise. We have a lot of potential. We should take advantage of these opportunities like the rise of China, and we should unite together. So on that said, uh, on that note, I'm going to go ahead now and jump to questions. And uh, here is Mike. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one second. I accidentally added you as a speaker. Let me. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, Mike. Oh, can you jump back in in the queue? My bad. Sorry about that. Um, I will take you, Mike. I just pressed the wrong. Let me see here. Make next. Make next caller. There you go. Go ahead, Mike. Mike, go ahead. You, you're, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, Good morning. I wanted to, I have a question, but I just wanted to respond quickly to that uh, good introduction about the summit coming up in LA. I'm actually calling in from LA and I just attended a, a webinar, I'm sorry, a conference last weekend put on by the PSL about socialism. And they're helping to organize a counter summit to the summit you just mentioned, which I thought is pretty cool kind of in the legacy of what happened in Mar del Plata in 2005. So I know that um, like the People's Forum and Answer Coalition, a bunch of really cool grassroots organizations are organizing a People's uh, Summit at the same time as that summit in LA to kind of challenge what the uh, Biden administration is doing. So anyway, uh, more, more to come in a couple of weeks. But my question actually had something to do with uh, what you talked about the last uh, episode around <clears throat> this kind of uh, historical, this history of the left fracturing around the question of um, anti-imperialism, really. And, you know, it was really kind of weird. After your the call-in last, last week, I read an article in Black Agenda Report talking about the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Margaret Kimberly wrote a pretty scathing article talking about how the Poor People's Campaign has thrown its support behind the war in Ukraine. And it was really unsettling to me because the Poor People's Campaign, I don't know if you, are, are you familiar with them at all, Ben, but they're a grassroots organization doing a lot of work um, exposing the terrible side of capitalism here in America and pushing for racial justice and economic justice. But anyway, to see them take this line, and this is pretty recent, they sent out starting uh, last couple of weeks, sent out an email putting their support behind sending more and more weapons uh, to Ukraine. So anyway, Margaret Kimberly wrote this article attacking Reverend Barber, who leads the Poor People's Campaign for using the name 
of Poor People's Campaign to dishonor Martin Luther King. So I did some research and it turns out that this Poor People's Campaign had taken money, a lot of money in 2020 from the Soros Open Society Foundation, something like $150 million was given. And so I guess my question, Ben, is this seems to be a reoccurring instance of these like liberal organizations giving money to groups to try and, you know, split us and keep us from being united, like you were just talking about. Uh, what like how do you approach how, how would you approach this when you know you're working with these groups who it seems like we're on the same side but then you get to these important questions and uh like imperialism and it does and it seems like yeah they've either been compromised from funding or yeah i don't know that's just not really a question but just sort of an a statement and a follow-up from last week that's all i have yeah, great comments, Mike. Thank you. I appreciate um, you providing that information. I mean, I didn't know about that with the Poor People's Campaign. I mean, it's really sad because the Poor People's Campaign goes back to Martin Luther King himself. And of course, people probably know his famous speech, Beyond Vietnam, in which quite early in the anti-war movement, he came out against the Vietnam War years before many other people came out against it. And he was brutally attacked. In fact, there is a report showing that there were more than 200 attacks on Martin Luther King Jr. in newspapers across the United States after he came out against the war in Vietnam. And MLK gave his his amazing speech in which he famously declared that the U.S. is the world's leading purveyor of violence. The leading purveyor of violence in the world, he said. It's the exact quote. And of course, it continues being the leading purveyor of violence in the world. Now, in you know, what to do. I mean, this is a really hard question and you know, there might be more, you know, seasoned veteran organizers, people like Margaret Flowers who'd be able to provide, I think maybe uh, better counsel, better advice than me, but a few thoughts. I mean, first of all, I think the, the one of the most important things to do is kind of talk to people who are involved in these organizations, especially who are not really in, in leadership roles, who are kind of, you know, they're very well-intentioned and you know, they're grassroots individuals who are just trying to help and fight against poverty. And they probably don't, don't understand what's going on in the upper levels with leadership and don't understand these political compromises that are probably linked to funding. I mean, I think you're also very right to point out the role that these big foundations have played historically in trying to neutralize the left. And you know, you're not allowed to say this because there are genuinely right-wing anti-Semitic conspiracies about George Soros. No, he's not a puppet master who controls everything, but he is a billionaire. He's one of the richest people on earth. He has a lot of political and economic influence. As as with other billionaires, obviously we're not singling him out like right-wing anti-Semites do, where they, they don't talk about how, you know, bad other billionaires are, but they single out you know, Peter Thiel, who funds them, but they do single out Soros. Obviously, all billionaires are are bad, but the reality is that Soros has a long history of working closely with U.S. intelligence agencies and cutouts. And Soros was one of the people named in this 1991 article in the Washington Post by David Ignatius, who's the CIA whisperer at the Washington Post. He's their 
he's the agency's water boy and he he wrote this this famous article called spyless coups and it was about how the US government helped to overthrow the Soviet Union and in and the other countries in the socialist bloc focusing on Poland and others and he David Ignatius singled out several individuals several names of people who were involved in this network working with the CIA working with the National Endowment for Democracy the NED which was created by Ronald Reagan's CIA under William Casey one of the most notorious CIA directors well David Ignatius in this Washington Post article he named the NED he named these other people and he named open society foundations and named George Soros as an individual who was involved in this US intelligence backed network to overthrow the Soviet Union and the other socialist countries in the Warsaw Pact so i mean that has historically been the role of open society like the ford foundation like the rockefeller foundation and the rockefeller brothers fund all of these big foundations are very closely linked to the cia and us intelligence agencies and historically they have played the role of funding what the cia refers to as the compatible left and this is very well documented in the brilliant book cultural cold war by Francis Stoner Saunders I would highly recommend everyone to check out that book it's really eye opening also there's a really good book by Joel Whitney which is called Finks F I N K S which talks about this as well and Gabriel Rockhill a brilliant scholar has been doing a lot of research on on this on the CIA co-optation of the anti-communist left to create what the CIA called a non-communist left and also a compatible left and unfortunately we see that continuing today the ford foundation poured billions and billions of dollars into trying to co-opt elements of the black lives matter movement which of course emerged as a grassroots movement against racism and police brutality but then of course the vultures came in with tons of funding from big ngos and foundations and then they you know some of them were were corporate vests and uh and do uh not not so subtle corporate advertising for big corporations about how great doritos are i won't name names here but uh they come from uh you know teach for america which is a notorious union busting operation and you you have this astroturfing operation i mean this is not new these campaigns go back decades where these big foundations pour in money they cultivate leaders who are opportunists who don't have clear political ideologies who can be pulled toward the direction of the democratic party and you know this kind of representative neoliberal politics so unfortunately it's very sad to see that with the people's the poor people's campaign which i mean has done important work and is also doing something that so few ngos are doing which is actually talking about poverty because it's of course it's very important to to have you know a, a strong anti-racist movement a movement against police brutality a movement against you know patriarchy and right now the attacks on abortion rights but there are so few organizations that actually talk about poverty and homelessness and inequality so yeah i mean it's sad to see i, I wish i had like a, a good answer about how to deal with that but i think one of the ways to deal with it is to really i mean with the networks and the friendships and you know alliances that that, that people have built with individual organizers involved in the poor people's campaign i think you know talking to them about these these contradictions about this history about cooptation i think a lot of them will probably be you know very sympathetic and they'll agree with you and what that does is it it builds this consciousness within the organization so they can potentially confront leadership 
because of course, if you're not involved in the organization, you're trying to confront leadership, then it looks like these people outside of the movement are trying to like take over leadership or attacking it or whatever. But if it's people who are involved in the organization, in the campaign, who have a vested interest, who have credibility within the organization, if they start, you know, organizing together and start talking and start raising concerns, then the leadership will have to be held accountable in some way. And I think that's a more effective approach for change. So, I mean, very good question. These are difficult issues. And I'm I'm sure, like I said, more veteran organizers like Margaret Flowers probably have. They would probably be someone to talk to to pick her brain. Brian Becker from the Answer Coalition probably knows a lot about these kinds of things and how to deal with them effectively. And and I would also just plug, I mean, um, he mentioned, Mike mentioned something important, which is the Summit of the Peoples, the People's Summit, or in Spanish they call it the Cumbre de los Pueblos, which is the counter summit being organized in protest of the Summit of the Americas in L.A. in June. And that is being organized by the Answer Coalition, by Code Pink. And it's also being organized by, um, well, the People's Forum is involved, but it's also being organized by the social movements arm of the ALBA, the Bolivarian Alliance in Latin America. So it's great to see this unity between progressive forces in Latin America and the U.S. organizing against the summit. Because like I said, the summit is organized under the auspices of the OAS, which... Uh, uh, Fidel Castro famously referred to as the Yankee Ministry of the Colonies. And of course, it, it's expelling or it is excluding rather Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba. So definitely people who are around the California area, the L.A. area, definitely check out the People's Summit. If you look up People's Summit, L.A., Los Angeles, they're organizing a bunch of protests in June, which should be very cool. So thanks for that question. I'm going to go to Stephen now. Hey, Ben, uh, big fan. Um, I was sad to see you leave the gray zone. I think they'll be missing your expertise, but I wish you luck in your new pursuits. Um, so on to the question, uh, it's nice to see kind of Latin America reclaim some sovereignty. I was hoping to hear your take on how successful you see that being, uh, how we got where we've been and the difference you see from, you know, the history of the Monroe Doctrine and particularly the last 50 years under foreign policy. So basically what's changed very, very good question. I mean, I would say overall, I'm very optimistic. I, I, and that's not just me. I mean, I've talked to many people around the world who often say that, you know, Latin America is in the vanguard. And I really think that's true. I mean, that's why I have been living here for several years and trying to report as much as I can in English, because there's a lot of stuff that happens that doesn't get any coverage in English or even Spanish sometimes, but usually English. So you know, I've talked to a lot of people around the world who who see Latin America as the the model for moving forward with a progressive and socialist trans, transformative politics. And if you look right now, I mean, even compared to from now to five years ago, the situation is much better. Five years ago, most of the countries in the region had right wing and in some cases far right governments, as we see in Brazil right now and Colombia, which have far right governments. But both of those countries have elections coming up later this year. In fact, this month, May 29th, there are elections in Colombia and the left wing candidate, Gustavo Petro, criticisms aside, I'll talk about that in a second. He's certainly not perfect, but in the context of Colombia, he's by far the best you can ask for. 
and he's leading in the polls. And that's why people are very, very scared for him. Actually, his security is being taken very seriously. He just gave a speech at a rally in which there's this photo that went around on Twitter of Gustavo Petro, the left wing presidential candidate in Colombia speaking. And in front of him, there are these these guards with like these big shields, like bulletproof shields, <laughs> because he can't speak at a rally without, you know, the fear that he's going to be assassinated. And Colombia is an extremely corrupt narco regime, and, and Hugo Chavez infamously referred to it as the Israel of Latin America. It's basically a, a, a colonial outpost of the United States, and the U.S. has poured billions of dollars into Plan Colombia, which resulted in you know helping paramilitary groups linked to the state in their attempt to, to assassinate the left, to liquidate the left. The fact that a former guerrilla... Gustavo Petro was a guerrilla in a socialist guerrilla group. The fact that he is now potentially going to be the next president is incredible. If the election is free and fair, although, of course, there are a lot of reasons to suspect it won't be, considering the current president, Ivan Duque, only came to power because the election was stolen from Gustavo Petro, who was the leading candidate in the last election, and it was stolen because the former far-right president of Colombia, who's the most powerful person in the country, Alvaro Uribe, he stole the election by buying votes with drug money. And this was admitted in recordings published by the uh, Colombian Attorney General's office. And it was admitted in confessions by the Colombian drug leader, Nene Hernandez, who died in mysterious circumstances after admitting that. So... I mean, that, that is a, a major development in Latin America to be looking, looking at very carefully. In, in October, Brazil has presidential elections, which, of course, everyone in the world is looking at very closely as well, because Brazil is an extremely important country, the sixth largest on Earth. It's the largest economy in Latin America. And it is also, in terms of regional alliances, it is an extremely important player. It, it's one of the co-founders of the BRICS, the B-R-I-C-S framework. And Lula da Silva, who is the leading candidate, he was the former two-term left-wing president between 2003 and 2011. And he left, by the way, in 2011, he left office with the highest approval rating, in, in one of the highest approval ratings in, in history. He had over 80% approval when he left office in 2011. So Lula is leading in all the polls against the far-right current president, Jair Bolsonaro, who only came to power because of a U.S.-backed coup that imprisoned Lula in, in the, during the 2018 election on completely bogus charges. And that those bogus charges were led by the, the former judge Sergio, Mor Sergio Moro. And Sergio Moro uh, has now been uh, completely disgraced. The UN Human Rights Committee just published a statement a few weeks ago in which they said that Lula was arbitrarily detained, that Sergio Moro was not uh, ab abiding by a, a constitutional process. And the, the UN Human Rights Committee said that the rights, the, the legal and political rights of Lula were violated. So it was a legal coup. It was what you could call lawfare, legal warfare. That's what prevented Lula from being president in 2018. And that's what allowed Jair Bolsonaro to come to power. Not to mention the judicial coup in 2016 against the first and only ever woman president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, also from the Workers' Party of Lula da Silva. So anyway, that is another thing that I think is very reassuring for the region. It shows that Latin America continues to move back to the left. And then, of course, 
The slightly less far-right but still right-wing governments in the region have also been defeated, including in Argentina. The right-wing neoliberal government of Mauricio Macri was defeated. And you have a new leader who is not great. I'll talk about him in a second, Gabriel Boric. He's kind of a center-left president, a young guy in his 30s. And there's also the um, – sorry, that was, that was in Chile. I'm sorry. Um, Boric is in Chile. Uh, in Argentina, it's Alberto Fernandez came to power uh, against Mauricio Macri. And then in Chile, you also recently had the defeat of the right-wing president there, a billionaire oligarch named Sebastián Piñera. Piñera was defeated, and uh, the candidate who was running against uh, the – I mentioned the center-left kind of millennial leader who's now the new president in Chile, Gabriel Boric, was this far-right guy who was openly defending Pinochet named Jose Antonio Cast, And he was he's the literal son of a Nazi. That's not It's not a joke. His father was an actual Nazi who voluntarily joined the Hitler Youth, and then he joined the Nazi German army and fought on the Eastern Front, and then he fought also in France. And then after, toward the end of the war, Jose Antonio Cast's father fled to Argentina and then he fled to Chile and his son was a strong supporter of the Pinochet regime and he was the second place candidate who who didn't win the election fortunately and he was defeated pretty resoundedly but the fact that he even made it to the second round of the election in Chile is pretty scary so um you know in Argentina right now there is a kind of center center left government it's not great but it's better than the right wing regime of Macri. And then in Chile, again, you also have this new kind of center-left government, which again is not very good, led by Gabriel Boric. So the reason I went into all those details is it shows that the right wing is is on the back foot right now in the region, and the left wing is ascendant across Latin America. But the other... So I, I, I would say that that makes me very optimistic, and it shows that you know, all signs indicate that in Brazil and potentially Colombia, the left is going to come to power as well, which would mean that almost every country in the region would have a left-wing government, excluding Uruguay and Ecuador. But all of that said, that does, of course, I think, provide a lot of reason to be optimistic. But within the Latin American left, there are a lot of contradictions, which make me slightly less optimistic. And this is also why I don't like this narrative of the so-called pink tide. It is much too simplistic. And it also ignores the fact that we are seeing major political um, – we're, we're seeing basically two different political directions of the Latin American left that are not – that cannot be complementary. They are contradictory, and that contradiction has to be resolved somehow because it's going to reach a breaking point. And specifically, I'm talking about – the center, center left, liberal, social democratic left, which we see in Argentina under Alberto Fernandez, in Chile under Gabriel Boric, and to a lesser extent in Mexico, although like I said earlier, actually, uh, Mexico is, is going out of its way under Andres Manuel López Obrador, AMLO. AMLO is going out of his way to try to help uh, bridge that divide, to try to uh, bring together the old school socialist forces that are led by Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, which represent, you know, going back to Fidel and Daniel Ortega and the Sandinista front. And then of course, Hugo Chavez, they represent the three great revolutions in Latin America in Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. That left, it, honestly, in Chile and Argentina, they're openly antagonistic. So Argentina 
even though it has this kind of center-left ostensibly government under Fernandez, which has in some ways been important in opposing the fascist coup in Bolivia in 2019, Fernandez at the same time has been voting with the United States against Nicaragua at the OAS and the United Nations. So we see Argentina in some ways allying with U.S. imperialism against progressive forces in the region. And also, by the way, Argentina also just voted to expel Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council. And similarly, in Chile, Gabriel Boric spent his entire campaign um, condemning Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua and China and now Russia. So after I saying all of those things, after I said all those things about, you know, the upcoming elections and the left being ascended, I think we should also understand that the narrative of of a unified pink tide is is simply not true, that there are a lot of divisions within the Latin American left that the U.S. is going out of its way to exploit. And that I think uh, in, in the years to come, as we see the new Cold War escalate against China and Russia, we already see people like um, Gabriel Boric, who, what his strategy is basically to say, don't worry, Washington, I'm not going to be one of those leftists that allies with Beijing and Moscow, like, like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua does. I'm going to stay on your side. So I think we can expect the U.S. government to continue to try to divide that left even further in the region. So if I may, yeah, it's, I, I would agree. It's definitely crisis time for the malicious actors in the U.S. blob. Um, they still have the same or even maybe an expanded toolbox uh, from, you know, historical precedents. Uh, so I, I just see this long history of kind of dirty tricks in Latin America. So, yeah, I, I guess that that was more, you know, like what buys their abeyance or political rejection? I, I guess that that was more my question is because, yes, you're you're absolutely right. You know, they can reconfigure some of their tools and start peeling off countries like they historically have. And so, yeah, I I guess that that was more my um, question is like, what what do you see as different in this particular political, you know, I guess consensus uh, than what we've seen historically? Good question. What I see that's different is, is the the revived leadership of Mexico. That is extremely important. Mexico historically I mean, we really need to, I think a lot of people, especially, I say this as someone from the U.S., obviously, in the U.S., the the perception of Mexico is so deeply racist and colonial and arrogant. And not only do I mean that in the sense of the dehumanization of Mexicans as people, we see this with Donald Trump referring to them as rapists. And I mean, there's so much racism, but I also mean it at a, at a deeper, more political level that is more subtle and, and the idea that Mexico is just like this, it's part of the U.S. backyard. It's not an important country. Mexico is an extremely important country. It, it, it is almost up in the top 10 largest economies in the world, and its economy continues to grow. And in terms of population, we're talking about a country with well over 100 million people with a growing population that is, you know, increasingly, I mean, you know, there's this there's discussion of, uh, you know, the imperial periphery. And the imperial core and the semi-periphery. I mean, Mexico up there with the BRICS is one of those economies that in 50 years is going to be one of the world's major economies up there with Brazil and Indonesia and, of course, Russia and China and India. Mexico has so much potential. And since the 1980s, when the, the PRI party, the constitutional, uh, the, sorry, the institutional revolutionary party, hilariously named party, 
when they took a very neoliberal turn in the 1980s, they really subordinated Mexico deeply to the U.S. in a way that actually was very unique for Mexican history. If you go back to the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s, and then you go up to the you know leadership of the the progressive leaders in like the 1930s, um, and you know you see actually today that AMLO is is referring to that that revolutionary and progressive history in Mexico that is not very well known outside of Mexico, but I think really should be studied. If if you study a lot of that history, and then you look at Mexico's role even during the first Cold War. It was always a very important geopolitical player. Um, for instance, many revolutionaries in Latin America, they actually were living for some time in Mexico, including Fidel and, and El Che, right? The che, uh, che. People in English call them Che. In Spanish, they, they say El Che, um, you know, Che Guevara, Ernesto Guevara. They spent a lot of time in Mexico, in Mexico City. They helped organize their, their campaign, the July July movement against the Bautista dictatorship in Mexico, Mexico City specifically. And basically the deal that the pre-government before it took a ne the neoliberal turn, the basically the deal that it had made was anyone across Latin America that was part of these leftist movements that was forced into exile during, you know, the U.S.-backed dictatorships of Plan, of Plan Condor, Operation Condor, you know, the people in the Chilean leftists who were exiled after the 1973 coup in Chile, the leftists from, you know, uh, other part from Brazil and other parts of the region, many of them did go to Mexico and they were allowed to operate. And basically the deal was the preset, as long as you don't get involved in domestic Mexican politics and try to overthrow us, we will allow you to organize and operate. So that, that, that doctrine that Mexico has historically had, which is called the Estrada Doctrine, which refers to a non-aligned foreign policy and independent foreign policy, that policy was really Mexico's policy until the 1970s, and AMLO is bringing it back. So I think that that actually, I mentioned AMLO's leadership here as trying to bridge this divide, even though I said there, I have criticisms of AMLO. I mean, for instance, he has helped also joining with Argentina in trying to isolate Nicaragua's Sandinista government, and in some cases, allying with the U.S., Obviously, there's also the issue of immigration, which is a very sensitive and complex issue. And there's definitely valid criticisms of the Mexican government's handling of immigrants and refugees. Although, of course, Mexico doesn't bear responsibility for creating the refugee crisis that, that was created by the U.S. But, I mean, there are valid criticisms. But at the same time, I mean, AMLO has been going out of his way to really try to help and also Bolivia. They've both been going out of their way to try to help bridge this divide between the old school revolutionary left represented, led by Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba and the newer, more social democratic liberal NGO left led by Argentina and Chile. So I actually think that, you know, I mentioned I began this call talking about AMLO's historic trip to Cuba, his comments in Belize about creating a Latin American union and and then the economic decline of the U.S. and calling for the end to U.S. sanctions on Cuba. I think that re that represents a, a, a very significant shift, and it, it shows that there is a lot of potential. So what I, I, what I think is their concern, of course, is just as I was talking about earlier with the kind of NGOization of left-wing forces, the infiltration with, you know, this big foundation money like we see from the Open Society Foundations and Ford Foundation and Rockefeller, that's equally true in Latin America. It's even more true with NED money, the USAID money. So there's a, there's a lot of, 
there are many attempts to try to co-opt these forces. So th I think that's the danger because people in Latin America, th there's widespread left-wing consciousness and class consciousness and also co consciousness against colonialism and the Monroe Doctrine. And Latin America is also in some ways lucky because it has a very progressive form of nationalism, which is impossible in the United States as a settler colonialist and imperialist country. There is no such thing as progressive U.S. nationalism. It cannot exist. There's progressive black nationalism and Chicano nationalism, but there cannot be a progressive U.S. nationalism by virtue of it being a settler colonial project, which is why I disagree strongly with the so-called patriotic socialists. In Latin America, there is a deep progressive left-wing nationalism across most countries that lends itself toward revolutionary and progressive change. So I think, you know, as long as the the NGO-friendly social democratic forces represented by Boric, as long as they're not put in kind of leadership roles, as long as they are kind of, uh, they're going along with the leadership of countries like Mexico, and if they can maintain this foreign policy that we see now, I think that represents a lot of potential. And that's something that did not happen in the first wave of these progressive governments of the so-called pink tide. Mexico was not part of that. You had in Ecuador, you had Correa. In Brazil, you had Lula and Dilma. In Venezuela, of course, you had Chavez and now Maduro. In Nicaragua, you had the Sandinistas come back under Ortega. Of course, Cuba was always there. In Argentina, you had the Kirchners, Nestor, and then and then Cristina. Um, in Chile, it was a very weak link under Bachelet. So Chile is always going to be a weak link. And uh, Mexico was never part of that. And now Mexico is part of that. And Mexico has the largest economy in Latin America after Brazil. So that is a that is a game changer. And I, and I, I think if if the left can hold on in Mexico, the Morena Party, if it can stay disciplined and maintained and maintain an independent, non-aligned foreign policy, that 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 along with the Lula coming back in Brazil, it's a complete game changer. Thanks, Ben. So I'm going to go ahead next to uh, Radioactive, I think, is the Radioactive Comrade. Here we go. Sorry, wait, 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 wait. Make the next caller. Here we go. I keep making you speakers. Go ahead, Radioactive Comrade. Hey, Ben. Thanks for taking my call. I'm a huge fan of your show. Um, I wanted to ask you because I have been – um. And before, um, I want to say, by the way, that um, personally, I I am consider myself more of a a Marxist or a leftist. You know, I wouldn't consider myself pro Putin, but the more that I learn about this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, it's harder for me not to support it. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many people, <clears throat> excuse me, that have been trying to like equate it to like Iraq or Libya, and um, I mean, with the coup, with what's been happening to the people in the Donbass, you know, over the past eight years. So I'm wondering, like, do you support it? Like, do you have critical support? Like, where do you fall on that? Yeah, very good question. Um, this, this is of course, a very complex issue, and I could spend you know, a whole hour talking about it, and I won't. I'll, I'll spend a few minutes here. First of all, I'll say that 
we need to understand Russia's role within the imperialist world system. Because when you see Russia's role, clearly, it makes the rest of the conflict much easier to understand. Russia is not an imperialist power. Russia is a capitalist country, but not all capitalist countries are imperialist powers. There's a big difference. Imperialism is a world system. We need to understand imperialism is not just a set of policies. That's why, you know, we, we saw these, these liberals accuse Iran of imperialism because Iran has foreign policy. Foreign policy is not the same thing as imperialism. Doing something outside of your borders is not imperialism. And Iran supporting anti-colonial liberation movements, national liberation movements in West Asia, that is, that is not imperialism. That is actually the opposite. That is supporting struggles against imperialism. And similarly, Russia is not an imperialist power. Now, Russia's role in the global economy is a complex one. Russia's role is not the same as many countries in the global south. Russia is what you could call a semi-peripheral economy like Brazil and to a lesser extent Mexico. That's why, you know, talked earlier about the BRIC system, BR. Russia's economy, its role in the imperialist world system is similar to the role of China and India and Brazil and to a lesser extent, South Africa. This is a country whose economy is entirely based This is not a country whose economy is based on the export of capital, which is what makes a country an imperialist country. Russia is not exporting finance capital to impose structural adjustment on countries in the global south. Russia is a country whose economy was completely brutalized and privatized by neoliberal shock therapy in the 1990s. And it was basically colonized. Russia basically was colonized by the West, by the United States and Western Europe. And Putin, who is a nationalist, and he's not in any way a socialist, he's an anti-communist, we should be clear about that. Putin represents what you could call the, the national bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie that act, the patriotic bourgeoisie that acts on behalf of the interests of the country and not the comprador bourgeoisie. Mao made the famous distinction between the comprador bourgeoisie, who are the agents of foreign imperialism, who don't act on behalf of their country's national interest. They instead on act on behalf of international capital, which is finance capital. And they're, they're the people who betray their countries to make money. And then there, there's the national bourgeoisie, the patriotic bourgeoisie, that yes, they're capitalists, but they also want to develop their country. They have a sense of national identity against imperialism. And we can, you can see Putin as representing the Russian national bourgeoisie. Now, again, he's an anti-communist, and we should be clear about that. And we should also be clear that the second largest party in Russia, in the Russian Federation, the biggest opposition party is the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. And that is a mass party that, that does very well in elections. And in the last elections, there was actually a lot of reasons to suspect that basically the central government took, they stole a lot of the votes from the Communist Party of the Russian Federation. Basically, the position of the Communist Party in Russia is it's very critical of a lot of Putin's domestic internal economic policies, but it's very supportive of his foreign policies. And Russia's foreign policy is a foreign policy that objectively has been friendly to the global south. Russia has been a major ally to existing socialist governments. I'm not in any way saying Russia is a socialist power. It's not. 
It is a capitalist power. But like I said, we have to understand the contradictions within the imperialist world system. And Russia's role as a semi-peripheral country within imperialism has pushed it into basically maintaining a similar policy to what it maintained in the Soviet Union. Now, in the days of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union's foreign policy was motivated by ideology in supporting socialism and national liberation movements. Russia's, the Russian Federation's foreign policy is, of course, not motivated by support for socialism. So Russia is a strong supporter, economically, politically, and militarily, of Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, also China, of course, Vietnam. And that's not because of its ideological affinity. It's because Russia has been forced into this position where it's not allowed to have its own independent foreign policy based on what it actually wants because the U.S. and Europe have forced Russia out of the imperialist world system. Now, when Putin came in, he wanted to integrate Russia into the imperialist world system. He wanted to become part of the European Union. He wanted to become part of NATO. Was we're not we're not going to tolerate that. We will only. We need to understand those contradictions. They go back to the non-aligned movement. The non-aligned movement was founded partially by socialists, but also by progressive nationalists. And we saw, I mean, who are the main founders of the non-aligned movement? It was Tito in Yugoslavia. It was also Nasser in Egypt, who was a progressive left-wing nationalist. It was also uh, India under the the left-wing nationalist, the Indian National Congress movement, which, I mean, call itself socialist nom nominally. I mean, social democratic, a left-wing nationalism. Um, and Indonesia under Sukarno, which was also a very progressive left-wing form of nationalism. We have to understand that this, this idea that all capitalist countries are the same is infantile. That, that kind of, that, that global north, you know, uh, academic socialist, academic so-called Marxist, which is actually an anti-Marxist philosophy or, or political movement, it, that doesn't that, that that doesn't explain what capitalism actually is as a system. Capitalism is imperialism, and it's a world system, and it's based on flows of capital from the the periphery to the core. I mean, that that's that's exactly how capitalism operates. Russia is not extracting capital from the global south and sending it to Moscow. That Russia is not an imperialist country, and that's very clear once again in its alliance in the BRICS and its foreign policy. And I have to say, I mean, I'm in Nicaragua right now. 
Russia is extremely popular in Nicaragua. It's very popular in Nicaragua. It's very popular in Cuba, despite the fact that, yes, Russia has a, a capitalist government and there's a lot internally in its internal domestic policy that we can criticize, just as there's a lot about Iran's internal domestic policy that we could criticize. But in terms of its foreign policy, Iran and Russia are very deep friends of the global south and of existing socialist governments. We also see this closely with Russia's alliance with China. And finally, as, as for the Ukraine conflict, I mean, it's a complex issue as well, because, of course, as socialists and anti-imperialists, we don't ever want to support war and especially a war that has strengthened NATO. I mean, we should be clear about that, unfortunately. Although Russia was forced into the situation by U.S. imperialism, by NATO, we should understand that that Russia, at the same time, although it's not necessarily its fault entirely, it has strengthened NATO greatly. Although uh, we'll see actually where that end up, ends up going, because while well, it has strengthened NATO on paper, and while well, European countries are remilitarizing, including Germany, at the same time, I mean, uh, how deep is NATO's commitment to actually you know, militarily supporting some of these countries if there is a larger conflict because they don't want to cause World War III. So, I mean, if you look at the position of Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Vietnam, Laos, countries with socialist governments, China has been very clear about this. They have not openly endorsed the Russian military operation in Ukraine. They have called for a peaceful resolution of the conflict, but they have all made it clear that it's NATO and the United States that bear responsibility for this war, that no country on earth would tolerate uh, being surrounded militarily by an, an adversarial military alliance aimed at overthrowing its government, which is Biden made that clear. Washington's goal is regime change. It is overthrowing the government in Moscow. No country would tolerate that. Furthermore, no country would tolerate a country that is a member on its border, which has, by the way, thousands of miles of border, no country would tolerate that country becoming part of a, an antagonistic military alliance with nuclear weapons aimed at it. Ukraine, Zelensky himself, has been talking about storing NATO nuclear weapons, which would have a flight time of a few minutes from Moscow and other major Russian cities. Imagine if if Mexico, which has a capitalist government, or Canada, which has a capitalist government, imagine if one of those countries or both of those countries became members of a Russian-led military alliance and they stored Russian nuclear weapons right near the U.S. border with a five to ten minute flight time to Washington and L.A. and New York. The U.S. would not tolerate that for a nanosecond. But of course, Russia is being expected to tolerate that because Russia is being treated basically as a colonial power, as a, as a country that is colonized. And that is why Putin is hated so much. It's not because he, of his conservative politics. We should be clear. He is a conservative politician. But in the context of Russia, by the way, he is a centrist. Putin is not far right. That is ridiculous propaganda. In the context of Russian politics, he's a centrist. That doesn't mean that I support Putin. I, if I had to pick a party in Russia, it would be the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which supports Putin's foreign policy, but criticizes his domestic policy. So I think we need to understand all of the decisions made within that, that framework, that Russia is not allowed to, that the U.S. does not allow Russia 
to exercise its own independent policy, whether it's through the sanctions and the economic war on, on Russia, refusing to allow other countries to have positive relations with Russia. Russia is a country that is fighting for its very existence. And you cannot say that about any of these Western imperialist countries. They are not fighting for their very existence. The idea that the U.S. invaded Iraq because it was an existential threat to the United States is laughably absurd. It's on the other side of the planet. Anyone claiming to that, that the, the Russian intervention in Ukraine is like the U.S. war in Iraq, that is an infantile baby brain analysis. The reality is that, yes, Ukraine joining NATO and having nuclear weapons minutes away from Russia, from Russia's capital, is an existential threat to Russia. And if you don't believe me, everyone should go out and go and check the 2008 embassy cable written by the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. His name is William Burns. He's the current CIA director. And in this 2008 cable, when in that year at the infamous Bucharest summit in Romania, NATO said that Ukraine was going to become part of NATO. In that 2008 cable, U.S. ambassador to Russia, William Burns, said, this is a red line to Russia. Russia will not ever tolerate Ukraine becoming part of NATO. And of course, the U.S. knew that, and they continued pushing up on Russia's borders because they wanted to provoke Russia. Yeah, that was an awesome, really insightful answer. And I'm sort of in a similar spot where I'm like, um, of course, um, uh, as a Marxist, you know, I'm very anti-war. I mean, even just we don't even need to talk about war crimes, right? Just on the basis of like the mass displacement of the working people. You know what I'm saying? But at the same time, it almost seems like an idealist position to just sit there and be like, oh, you know, war is bad. But then it's like. How bad would it be for the whole entire population of Eastern Europe to just let NATO come in, all these Western and, and also from a communist perspective, the Communist Party has been banned in Ukraine for quite a while now. I actually think it was ever since the U.S. couped them. That since the 2015. Yeah. Since a year after the coup, since 2015, it's been banned. And then Zelensky has since banned all the other left wing parties. Yeah, exactly. So it's almost like while we can sit here and say like war is bad, you know what I mean? It we really can't ignore the threat that that would have been, you know, just letting NATO, what is NATO supposed to just go in like literally just surround Russia, you know? Like nuclear weapons. That's even like closer than Cuba was to the United States, you know what I mean? But um yeah, thanks. I um I really pre appreciate the answer in your time, Ben. Yeah, thank you for the question. It was a great question. Very briefly, I'll add here that, yeah, I mean, that's why the position, the anti-war position is not Russia withdraw. That's not the anti-war position. The anti-war position is political settlement and Ukraine never, ever becomes part of NATO. Ukraine remains an independent, neutral state. Russia has guaranteed security guarantees that it gets in writing from NATO and the U.S. and the EU. And Crimea, which had a democratic referendum and the people of Crimea voted to become part of the Russian Federation overwhelmingly. Crimea remains part of Russia because that's what the people of Crimea wanted. And the Donbass remains independent. That's the solution. And by the way, everything I just said is exactly what Russia was demanding 
back in November and December when it asked these these written security guarantees from the U.S. and NATO and the EU. And of course, Washington and Brussels denied every single demand, which was a very reasonable demand from Russia. And by the way, most of those demands are also basically represented by the Minsk II agreement, which was agreed to by the Ukrainian regime, the post-coup regime under Poroshenko, the the even more right-wing U.S. puppet, billionaire oligarch, and the U.S. government supported Minsk II. It still claims to support it. It never has. And at the U.N., it was voted at the Security Council as a legally binding resolution that makes it part of international law. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. The solution to this conflict is not Russia unilaterally withdrawing. The solution is NATO never becomes Ukraine never becomes part of NATO. Ukraine becomes politically neutral right into its constitution. Crimea stays with Russia, as the Democratic reference said. The Donbass is independent and Ukraine becomes demilitarized and it's not going to have nuclear weapons. And of course, so in the EU and the US refuse any of those. And they continue to militarize the conflict. So the social Democrats and liberals who say that Russia is the only side of the imperialist argument, saying that Russia has to unilaterally withdraw, I mean, that's that's not in any way anti-war. That's the pro-NATO position. And of course, the long-term solution is NATO has to be abolished. I mean, NATO should be abolished immediately, but of course, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But yeah, so I agree with you. That's when I was saying that, I mean, if you look at a lot of existing socialist governments and left wing forces, they're not necessarily openly endorsing the Russian war, but they're making it everything I just said clear that this war began in 2014 with the U.S. coup. The U.S. and NATO bear responsibility, and it's not a one sided war. And if we want an actual solution to the, the conflict, there has to be political negotiations, which we have seen in Belarus and Turkey. And by the way, some of the Ukrainian negotiators in those peace talks were then later killed by the SBU, the Ukrainian secret police. So, yeah, I mean, the NATO, U.S., EU, Western position is objectively in support of more war, not against the war. So I'm going to go ahead and take Jeff here. and This will be my last question. and I'm going to wrap up and I'm going to do another call this week. So, uh. So if people who want to join and have more questions, I'll have another call this week. But here's here's Jeff. Can you hear me, Ben? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I have to say, I really agree with uh, all that you've just said in the last few minutes about uh you know, Russia and the situation in Ukraine. And uh, it's just really depressing to see how many people in the American left are um, just so totally brainwashed that uh, they can't see that, uh, you know, in my opinion, and I think you probably agree with me, uh, Russia was more or less forced to do this. It, you know, their choices were intervene now intervened before now, which actually a lot of the left in uh, Russia uh, supported, uh, or intervene later. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, the U.S. was just going to be able to use Ukraine as a tool for um, subverting Russia. Um, and, you know, of course, the people in the Donbass would have been slaughtered, um, you know, because the Ukrainian army was about to invade. But, uh, 
even in this uh, little socialist grouplet that I'm a part of, uh, there's about 15 of us, um, who are well to the left of most socialists in America. Uh, you know, we issued a statement about the uh, war, and you know, by the way, we'd be happy to have you sign on with us if you want to. Um, but I was, you know, they said, you know, all the right things otherwise, such as, you know, uh, abolish NATO, no weapons to Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but they were very insistent, other than, you know, like a couple of people and myself, on including the phrase, although we do not condone the Russian invasion. Um, and I'm like, well, I signed on to the statement anyway, but, you know, I don't really agree with that because, uh, despite all the criticism we can make of Putin uh, and his government, you know, it seems to me, based on my understanding of the situation, they were forced to do this. Um, you know, the uh, U.S. and NATO pushed them into this. And, you know, I'm just wondering, like, how do we uh, you know, convince more people to uh, see what's really going on here? So... Well, yeah, like I said, this this is what makes it so hard. It's because the reality is that I'm just going to meet you really quickly because there's some sound. Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that's what makes this contradiction so difficult, because the reality is that, I mean, wars, wars like this are always bad for the working class. And they're also bad even for Russia. I mean, if you look at the Russian economy, yes, it, it is surviving the sanctions because the Russian economy, the Russian government prepared. For many years, ever since the 2014 sanctions applied over Crimea, over <laughs> the people of Crimea voting to become part of Russia, so punishing Russia. But, um, I mean, Russia ha was prepared economically, but this is going to do a lot of damage. And we're just seeing the beginning. I mean, the currency has stabilized because of policies of the central bank and because Russia continues exporting oil and gas. But we're, we are going to see a lot of problems in the years to come. And the U.S. and EU have made it clear that the sanctions are going to stay on. So what they're basically saying is that, I mean, this is a massive escalation of the new Cold War. And they're saying that they have created a new Iron Curtain, an economic Iron Curtain that, in, I mean, there's, of course, there is a silver lining to these things. It means that that's going to lead to further Russian integration with the Chinese economy. And with the Iranian economy, and you have this Eurasian economic bloc, and then it's going to strengthen the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. But what it also does at the same time is it leads to basically two big poles, and it leads to a bipolar world, which is going to always be on the brink of nuclear war. And that's the danger. I mean, I agree, and I've argued this since the very beginning of the Russian intervention. And before, by the way, because I've been doing a lot of reporting on Ukraine before, a lot of you know liberals in the U.S. could never find Ukraine on a map. And, you know, going back years to talk about the U.S. support for Nazis in Ukraine, which is extremely well documented. But the reality is that, again, I agree that the U.S. and NATO forced Russia into this position. But the reality is that Russia, by defending its interest, which it is doing, I mean, it also did massively escalate the situation, which does bring the world much closer to world war. And again, that doesn't mean that that I'm saying that Russia is a big baddie and it's evil and it, no, but I'm saying that, you know, when, when you are in these difficult situations, it's, it's hard. It's very difficult to be patient. It's, and I'm not lecturing them. I mean, so here's an example. Donald Trump committed an act of international terrorism, an act of war. He murdered the second in command of the Iranian government, Qasem Soleimani. And I'm sure there are a lot of people in Iran who said, 
look, this is an act of war. We have to respond. Now is the time for war. They probably wanted to shoot missiles at Israel and start a regional conflict. Yeah, but then Iran is going to be militarily destroyed. So, I mean, just because one side in a conflict is justified in, in the sense that it was provoked or it's the victim doesn't mean that if it escalates militarily, that's necessarily good for even itself or for the rest of the world. Like, yes, Russia was put in this very precarious situation, but I mean, who knows how it would have gone? Like Ukraine was is also, I mean, this has in some ways actually strengthened Ukraine. Ukraine was basically a complete corrupt failed state, the poorest country in Europe. It was surviving on IMF loans that have also lead, led to structural adjustment imposed on it. It's really hard to say what could have happened. So I'm not blaming Russia. I'm saying that that that's why it for from the perspective of an anti-imperialist and a socialist, I mean, saying that the solution is military intervention. I mean, it's really hard to say. And and I, I, like I said, I'm not uh, Eugene Prier put it a good way. I agree with Eugene's analysis. I'm neither condoning nor condemning the Russian military operation. But again, like if you look at a lot of countries in the global south in particular that put a strong emphasis on defend defense of territorial integrity and non-intervention in foreign affairs, it puts them in a difficult situation. Russia is part of this group called the Group of Friends in Defense of the UN Charter. <laughs> Excuse me. And the UN Charter has principles of non-intervention and respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity. And China, its diplomats constantly reiterate that every time they speak. We defend territorial integrity. We defend non-intervention in foreign affairs. And they believe that. They truly do believe that. And they believe that it's important to the extent that international law does even exist. They think it's important to, to have those principles embedded within the international legal framework. Because if they are violated and if they give, if, if they condone violation of those principles, that, open, that creates, an, that creates a, a precedent that can be used by imperialists to attack them. So like I said, I mean, it's a very difficult situation and I agree with Eugene Prier that I neither condemn nor condone it. But like I said, these are, you know, war, war is always bad for, for the left. And I think the, the only solution is what Russia has proposed from day one. And maybe by intervening in Ukraine, Russia will force Ukraine to come to the table and finally agree to all these demands that it was demanding. And in that sense, maybe it would, it would be a political victory. But there's also the possibility that, that NATO and the EU continue to flood Ukraine with tens of billions of dollars of weapons going to these Nazis and extremists, and they continue prolonging the war for years, as what happened in the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988, as happened in the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, which was also nearly a decade. So. I mean, these these are very complex discussions. And I, I think, again, the responsibility of people in the anti-imperialist movement, especially in the so-called West, first and foremost, it is abolish NATO. But that's, of course, a long-term goal. In the short term, it is no more weapons to Ukraine, political solution, Russia's security demands have to be met, Crimea stays as part of Russia, uh, the Donbass stays independent as the people want, and uh, Ukraine becomes neutral and will never become part of NATO. That is the only solution to this conflict. And anyone claiming to be anti-war who doesn't support those demands 
is not truly anti-war. What they're doing is actually just providing a fake left-wing justification for NATO and for imperialism. And if you look again, if you read carefully what Cuba has said, what Venezuela has said, what Nicaragua said, what China has said, and all of those countries are extremely close allies of Russia, they have all said exactly that, that the U.S. and NATO started this war. The U.S. and NATO are the reason this war continues. And the only solution and what needs to be demanded by the Western anti-war movement is U.S., NATO, out of Ukraine, neutrality for Ukraine, security demands for Russia. So with that said, I want to thank everyone who joined me here today. Uh, Hopefully, I think the technical issues have been solved. So hopefully this issue should be able to go up without um, without concern, without issues. And I'm going to do another one of these calls this up, this week. Today is Tuesday. So I'll probably do one on Thursday or Friday. So keep track on my Twitter. I'll post that on Twitter and I'll invite people to take questions or to ask questions and I'll, and I'll respond. So thanks to everyone who joined. And of course, this is going to be up after people want to listen and I'll see you next time. Thanks.